I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's the Stream Police Podcast 100th episode spectacular. And now, the man who refuses to come out of the closet, Clint Davis. Oh my god, the band. The band sounds hot tonight, don't they? Episode number 100, baby. We got a big gala here, a big live studio audience with us. This is crazy. We've never done something like this. It's just insane. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, beyond, I'm beyond thrilled to welcome everybody here to the 100th episode of the Stream Police Podcast. Coming at you live on tape and direct from my closet, uh, as usual, in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, look, we're not live. There's no audience. That was me doing the uh, intro there as well. You know how we do this show. It is our 100th episode uh, of the Stream Police podcast, and I'm very proud of that milestone. Don't get me wrong, but doing a big blown out 100th episode felt like that would be a little bit off brand for our little lo-fi show, right? I mean, I bring you my segment from inside a closet. Andy and I rarely ever talk to each other back and forth on this show. We've only done that a handful of times in the history of this show. He does his segment up from his house in Cleveland. And, you know, we all we mix it together and we bring it to you right here once a month. So, I, I don't know. I just thought, uh, yes, this is our 100th episode. And yes, Andy and I are both thrilled. It's taken us a long time to get to this point. Our first episode, by the way, came out all the way back on April 20th, 2015. So we are also getting a little bit close. Uh, next month will be seven years officially of us doing this show, which is just wild, isn't it? Seven years of the Stream Police podcast and 100 episodes. That really, uh, that makes me feel good, actually. That makes me probably feel better than the 100 episode thing, is just knowing how many years we've been bringing you this show uh, totally for free. And if you go back to that very first episode, you might be kind of stunned because um, it's only 32 minutes long. There's not even an intro song. Um, talk about lo-fi. And uh, we're talking, I mean, it, sa- it sounds like ancient history now, the stuff that we're talking about on this show. I looked at 
Um, and at that point, we were trying to do the show like once a week or once every two weeks, something like that. I think we were trying to do it once a week right at the start. And that quickly, we were like, holy, we can't do this. Like, we both have day jobs. It's too much going on. And we tried to do it once every couple weeks, and that was fine. That worked a little bit better. But then once a month just felt more natural. And it was like, you know, we talk for a while anyway. And everybody's got a million shows they listen to. And, you know, I mean, we're not getting paid to do this show. Uh, we do it totally because we love doing it. And hopefully you guys listen for the same exact reason. Um so it was just like, you know, let's do it once a month. And then we've done that for a long time. So, But if you go back to that first episode, I'm talking about the series finale of Justified, which had like just aired on FX. Great finale, by the way. I was thrilled about it. Um, Andy talked about David Letterman, who was winding down his time as the host of uh, The Late Show on CBS, which is just, isn't that crazy? Like, it doesn't seem like forever ago that David Letterman was hosting late night television still, but he was doing a lot of great musical performances. So Andy kind of talked about that from a music perspective because Letterman was always famous for having a great ear for music anyway and having uh, you know a great eye for interesting musical guests. People like Warren Zevon come right to mind when you think of that. And I actually talked about what the, what I was considering the biggest moment in television at that point, and that was the uh, th- that was the interview between Diane Sawyer and Caitlyn Jenner. And, I mean, this was before she had transitioned. This was, like, just when um, Caitlyn Jenner was becoming somebody that we all knew. Um, and it was, it was you know, wild stuff because it was, for the first time, really, like, trans people were becoming mainstream and were being talked about, uh, you know, in the mainstream. And I think that interview went a long way in this. And I remember being really impressed by it and the way that Diane Sawyer handled her business because, I mean, she was always brilliant at that anyway. But uh, there's a lot of uh, lot of great stuff. You go back and look at the old episodes of, of The Stream Police. You go back all the way to uh, 2015 and check that out. Um, but, yeah, the show, we've been doing this for, uh, for, for quite a long time. We've covered a million shows and, and, and movies and records and everything else on this show, and uh, we'll just keep cranking them out. So for... Years to come, uh, here in another seven years, we'll bring you our 200th episode of the show, if you'll still be sticking with us in uh, the year 2029. We'll see where we're at at that point. Uh, but anyway, it's been a lot of fun bringing you this show, and hey, we'll continue to do so. Uh, as always, I urge you to, uh, you can uh, follow me on Instagram and on TikTok as well, at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. Andy is on uh, Instagram at Andy Sedlak. His last name is S-E-D-L-A-K. Uh, you'll get a lot of Browns content on there, but you'll also get to see, um, you'll also get to uh, see kind of what he's watching and what he's listening to as well. I post on Instagram a lot about what I'm watching, movie-wise, uh, and always welcome your comments when I do post something that I'm watching on that partic- uh, particular night. And you can follow me on uh, YouTube as well at Overdue Review. I am over there. Uh, but yeah, like I said, hundredth episode. The reason, um, the real reason. I, and I, I mentioned last month that I wanted to get together with Andy to do this show, and it was not Andy's fault at all. It was totally my fault that we weren't able to do that. Really, it's because we have my wife Beth and I. We've been house hunting for the last like month and some change, and it turns out that it's exhausting having your dreams crushed five times a day and spending fifty dollars in gas to drive across town and have it done. Um, 
So this is, it's been awful. Honestly, it's been a nightmare. And uh, like Sting would say, uh, this has really been a humiliating kick in the crotch. Anyway, I don't want to make this negative. Let's uh, let's move on and talk about what we're here to talk about, which is movies and television. Let me light my stogie. I like to sit in my closet in Columbus and light up a stick to get things going, get the mood settled. And we're good to go once again here on the Stream Police Podcast. Uh, as always, we like to start things with our... Uh, look at the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And while it is our 100th episode, it's only our 73rd entry into the uh, canon of the greatest TV show theme songs ever. And for our big 100th, I, I did want to pull a piece of solid gold off my list of greatest TV show theme songs of all time. Because I got that short list I've told you about that I've been, you know, just kind of adding to over the years. And this is one of those that just forces you to look at the TV. Like when this came on, I remember when this show debuted. Um, and I remember hearing this theme song and it's like, yeah, it just brings your eyes to the TV. doesn't matter if you were in the middle of a great book or you were in the middle of making dinner or whatever. This song comes on, your eyes are going right to the TV because it's just that it's just that kind of song. It just draws you over. It also makes you want to turn up the volume and kick out the recliner because it just has attitude. Unlike last month's pick, which was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme, this one has no lyrics at all, but I still bet you know it by heart. Crank it up because we're going back to 1997 when Fox debuted King of the Hill. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. If you ask me, few theme songs in TV history have as much energy as the one from King of the Hill. I just feel like this song kicks in from the first note and just beats you for 30 straight seconds with rock and roll country bliss. It is a total foot stomper. And when you pair it with like those fast moving stop motion images uh, of the guys from the show standing around drinking beer, mowing the lawn, taking the trash out... It just worked like a dream. It's one of my favorite pairings of image and song in uh, the history of television. It's another thing that makes this song so great. And the King of the Hill theme song actually has its own title, and it has a pretty unique story behind it if you've never heard it. So the track is called Yahoos and Triangles, which is a pretty perfect title, right? I mean, what else is there? Because the triangle, I can't really think of another song where the triangle plays such a starring role in it. There's like a big triangle solo at the end and you hear yahoos going throughout, just like you would expect from a good piece of Texas country rock music. Uh, but that's where it's going to surprise you, I think, because you would think this song, because King of the Hill is like the quintessential Texas show, right? I mean, it was living and breathing Texas. That's what it was all about. Hank Hill and his buddies, I mean, they were diehard, down-to-the-bone Texans. And uh, this song, though, was actually written and performed by a group that came out of Arizona in the 1990s. The band was called The Refreshments. And this band had a little brief run in the 1990s, but they were acclaimed and 
people in Arizona, apparently in the Arizona music scene, still love them. Uh, but in 1997, right before King of the Hill was set to debut, I guess Fox sent the word out to a bunch of record labels that it was looking for a short song that could open up this new animated series that it had going on. A series about a, te- a family in Texas, um, and that, you know, kind of just give you the basics of what the show's about, and can you give us a piece of music that might go with this? The guys in the refreshments had a couple of instrumental jams that I guess they would play during their sound checks every night. And so they recorded this one live one night. This was one of the songs that they would just kind of noodle around with while they were checking sound levels before they would, you know, really get out there to do a real show. But they recorded it live one night and they told the crowd to let out a big cheer at the end. And they wanted to send the tape to Fox to give themselves a shot to be the uh, openers of this TV show. And so they recorded it, the crowd gave them the huge cheer, and Fox loved it. And they invited the refreshments to Los Angeles to record a studio version for the show, and the rest is history. Refreshments did break up really shortly after this song was chosen, um, but I guess the guys from the band went on to have kind of, you know kind of separate careers and kept it indie and kept it local and all that stuff. And people in the Arizona music scene still love this band, still talk about it uh, with reverence, and still talk about the guys and still you know support the guys from the band as well. So if you assumed like me that the theme song from King of the Hill was written by a bunch of Texans then you'd be dead wrong. It was written by a bunch of guys from Arizona, actually. I think Hank Hill would would be hurt to know that, actually. I think that might hurt his feelings a little bit. Almost as much as if you told him that you were cooking your steak with uh, charcoal instead of propane. King of the Hill ran for an incredible 13 seasons, and I say that because this was one of those shows that was always kind of teetering on the brink of cancellation, and I always thought the scope of it seemed so narrow, and it was so not cartoony, like it was definitely a show you could have just shot with cameras, uh, and you could have done it live action easily. I mean, there wasn't really anything that happened in King of the Hill that couldn't have been done in live action, uh, really probably just as well. Um, but they decided to do it animated. And I think it's just, it's a really unique animated sitcom. Um, and it had a really long 250 plus episode run. Like I said, for 13 seasons from 1997 to 2010, crazy to think that it just went off the air in 2010. And there's actually been serious talk of a reboot happening in the past few years. So we'll see what happens with that. But it does seem like King of the Hill will be coming back with the characters maybe advanced uh, in age. The show was co-created, though. Really what made it work was the dream team of Mike Judge and Greg Daniels. Mike Judge is one of my heroes in uh, in television. He's the guy who brought you Beavis and Butthead uh, and Office Space and Idiocracy and Silicon Valley. So many great projects have come from Mike Judge over the years, and he just genuinely seems like one of those very few guys in the entertainment business that I'd actually like to sit down and talk to, have a beer with. Um, just always seemed like a cool guy. Anytime you see an interview with him, like a guy who gets it really. Um, 
so it, Mike Judge co-creates it with Greg Daniels, who at that point was not as well known as Judge was, but Daniels in the years since be, has become an icon. He's the guy who brought The Office to America. He's the one that adapted The Office for the uh, for NBC, and he's the guy who created Parks and Recreation. So again, Mike Judge, Greg Daniels, Dream Team, and they are apparently behind the efforts to reboot it. So you have to imagine it'll be good if they're going to be back at it with all the power that they've got now. But like I said, I thought the show was always kind of cool and unique, just very down-to-earth in the cartoon world. It was very strange in that way. Um, and, you know, it's just about a, some guys who would stand around the front yard, drink some beer, uh, a lady who had big feet and liked to play Boggle, um, and kind of their mild-mannered uh, son. And that was really what it was about. It was uh, just kind of an oddity in its day. But, hey, it lasted a long time, and the show was cool, but we're talking about its opening song now, and... Yahoo's and Triangles by The Refreshments is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. All right, so at the time I'm recording uh, this, it's before the Oscars have aired, but by the time you listen to this, I'm sure it's going to be after the Oscars have aired. So, hey, it might sound like old news, but look, this show's full of old news. You know, that's the nature of only doing it once a month, all right? I don't have time to come down here and give you a uh, a whole Oscars preview the day before the show airs, and tr- frankly, I don't think you'd really want to listen to it all that much anyway. So I, what I thought I would do here... I'm not going to like run down the whole, like all the nominees and tell you what, who I think is going to win every category or anything like that. I'm not going to pontificate too much. What I wanted to do is tell you that over like the last month, I've really been trying to catch up on the nominees as much as I can. And thankfully most of them are uh, up for you to watch uh, right now at your house. Pretty all of them. In fact, all the best picture nominees, there's 10 nominees and nine of them can be watched at your house right now with either a, a cheap rental, which I mean like a $6 rental, or a subscription to a streaming service. I'll tell you how they're all available. Uh, with The only one is, that's the exception is Licorice Pizza. It's the one that's still in theaters only. Of course, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. You know how much I love him. And unfortunately, it's one of only three of the nominees that I have not seen. Uh, and it's the one of the three that I wanted to see the most. So anyway, I've seen seven of the ten nominees for Best Picture. The ones I missed are Licorice Pizza, just because I didn't want to go to the theater and risk my life yet. I'm not totally comfortable yet. Um, Don't Look Up, which is on Netflix. That's the Adam McKay movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. I just didn't care. It didn't look like... Adam McKay really just wears me down. I don't really like his movies very much. I don't like the smug kind of tone of them. Um, I don't really think they're funny. I don't think they're interesting. So maybe like... I'm hammering him a little bit here, but Don't Look Up just did not really appeal to me. The cast looked really cool, but it looked like one of those movies that was just going to have everybody in it for like one scene, like cameos. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't I don't know. The, the appeal is very limited to me on that one. I also did not watch King Richard yet. I didn't find the time for it, but also I wasn't particularly interested in watching King Richard. Um, mostly... This one, King Richard, did not interest me because it's produced by the Williams sisters. So to me, it's like they're going to do a movie about their dad. That's cute, but it's going to inevitably be kind of a soft touch biopic. And that's really 
not what I want to see when I watch a drama about somebody. I when it, Whenever it's produced by somebody in the family, it, to me that turns me off. Like, I'd rather read the unauthorized biography than the authorized biography any day of the week. Uh, because I just think that they're not as beholden to you know, sharing the script, representing things in a, a, a kind light. And I'm not saying that like the Williams sisters dad was probably some big asshole and they needed to, you know, show that on screen. But I mean, he had to be a pretty intense guy from the, from everything that I've ever read. And from the way I've heard it, this movie is like a, um, you know, it makes him basically look like a saint and, uh, that just you know limited the appeal a little bit to me. Plus, I, I don't feel like Don't Look Up, King Richard, and Licorice Pizza are, are probably in the, the front-runner conversation of winning anyway. So they were a little lower on my priority list. But I really do want to see Licorice Pizza. So I'm uh, disappointed I didn't get to see that one. But what I wanted to do was tell you about the seven that I have seen and rank them in order in the order that I think would be from least likely to... Well, I don't want to say likely, but... Worst to best, I should say, in terms of which ones I think should win Best Picture, which ones I think should not win Best Picture. So seven of the ten nominees, I'll run them down for you and tell you where uh, you can watch them now. So number seven, let's start off with Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. And um, this is the lowest on my list, not because it's a bad movie. And again, none of these are bad movies. These are all Best Picture nominees. So you're not going to like lose out because you watch any of these like these are all the the 10 nominees are always worth your time to watch I mean to get to that echelon to be nominated I'm not saying every movie that's been nominated for best picture is a masterpiece or anything there have been more than a few that I'm like oh my god like who were they friends with who were they uh, the politics must have been running rampant uh, to get this movie to be nominated but this year, all the ones I saw, I think, were worth your time to watch for one reason or another, and I'll tell you why. Belfast right now, if you want to watch it, is a streaming rental, by the way. So you can watch it for like six bucks um, if you go into wherever it is you rent your streaming movies uh, and just type in Belfast. You should see it right there to be able to watch. And what this is, this is a, a comedy drama, more drama, um, I would say, but it's it's a, it's a growing up, coming of age kind of movie. Set in Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, it, during the Troubles. So during, you know, the times when, and really, I mean, this is a, a cause that is still being, you know, talked about plenty in Ireland, the cause to bring, unite the country back together again, or, um, you know, to have Northern Ireland remain part of the United Kingdom as it has been for de uh, decades now. But at this point, when the movie takes place, I think it's in the 1960s, it's it's a dangerous place. And the residents of Belfast are, are kind of being separated by whatever religion they are, and whether they're Catholics or they're Protestants. That's the big thing. And um, it's a dangerous place. And the opening of the movie really gets that across to you. So this was a movie about the Troubles. And I did not expect to laugh so much. This has a lot of heart in it and a lot of laughs. And it's it's really funny. It's touching as well. Um, but the reason I'm ranking it last out of the seven that I've seen is because it just it felt a little bit slight to me to be a Best Picture nominee. It felt a little small. Um, it didn't quite feel on that kind of echelon. It, it was one of those movies that you would see and I think it was, it's like, Mel, that was well made, really well acted, well done. 
But it's like, it's not one of those that's going to change my life. It's not one of those that's going to change the way I think about anything. And it's not one of those that I think is going to last with me for the entire year, uh, if I'm being honest. So that's why I rank it last out of the seven, because I think it, it left the little, the least impact on me. And I'm somebody who really, like, I love Ireland. I've been there. Um, I've been to Belfast. It was really cool to see places that Beth and I had gone um, in the opening credits and, you know, kind of throughout this movie. That was really cool. And, I, and you know, I, I felt it. Uh, but, it, you know, it just didn't do as much for me as, as the other ones that I saw. But anyway, phenomenal cast uh, in this movie. I thought uh, Katrina Balfe, who I was not familiar with at all, but I guess she starred in the Outlander series, which, you know, everybody, a lot of people love those series of books and love that TV show. Uh, I thought she was tremendous. She brought most of the weight to this film. Uh, she played uh, the main boy. She played his mother. And, I mean, pretty much all the dramatic weight rested on her shoulders. And I thought she did great work. So I'm looking forward to seeing Katrina Balfin some more stuff. Um, and the cast was pretty much all Irish or had serious Irish uh, roots in their families. In the case of Judy Dench, uh, who played the grandmother character, in the film and she did really great work. She's up for an Oscar again. Siren Hines is always phenomenal. He does great work in this as well. Uh, and Jamie Dornan is also in it, but there was some really good child acting too. Um, but again, it was kind of, it was nothing that I hadn't seen done before is the thing with Belfast. I've seen this kind of movie before. Uh, and I think it, it kind of just covered some more of the same ground that I had seen, but it, it did end on a really, I think touching note. And this was a personal movie for Kenneth Branagh because his family left Belfast to go to England when he was a boy. And that's kind of the story of what's happening uh, in in this film. So there's a lot of stuff about law, about leaving, about grieving um, and, you know, what the impact is on the people left behind when everybody starts kind of fleeing from a, a dangerous situation. Um, unfortunately, having the entire soundtrack be done by Van Morrison, obviously an Irish music legend, um, made me wince a little bit after everything that I've learned about Van Morrison in the past year. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and go back to episode number 96 and listen to Andy's segment on conspiracy theories and music because it's a really good one. And uh, he goes into how Van Morrison just over the last few years has really become somebody that I don't even hardly want to hear his songs anymore, which is really sad because he's got some that I really love. Um, but this movie is loaded with Van Morrison. Every song. He did the whole soundtrack. It's all new songs. Uh, one of them's up for an Oscar. So, it, But it was kind of awkward because it's like, oh, God, this guy's like a big COVID denier. And uh, I don't imagine Kenneth Branagh feels that way from what I know about him. But you never know, I guess, with people in entertainment so number seven on my list of the seven nominees i've seen belfast streaming right now as a streaming rental if you want to check it out we have to do a project about the moon landing what did those boys not come back from that they did now we have to cut things out of the papers and explain how they got there if they did get there they did get to the moon it's not what it says here god doesn't like it and i watched every night too that they were up there and how did I never see Mike Collins in the mothership doing his orbit? Surely you would have seen the sheep of Columbus against the light of the moon. No, that's because mostly he was on the dark side. Exactly, it's the side that Lucifer hangs his shillelagh. Well, no, he was on the dark side of the moon most of the time where we couldn't see him. 
you know, when he was doing his orbit, and then maybe, you know, just before he was due to come around the corner, you had to go in for your tea. I'd recommend that one if you like stories about family, if you want something a little bit lighter, um, and if you just want to see really good acting. Uh, I think you'll dig it, and I think you'll 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 find a lot of heart in it because I did too. Number six on my rankings here. I talked about this one last month. Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Uh, like I said last month, there was just no heart to be found in this movie, I thought. And I just felt so distant from it. I think I liked Belfast as a movie better than Nightmare Alley. But the reason I rank Belfast lower is because it doesn't have the same kind of weight. Like Nightmare Alley has a weight behind it and a look and a big kind of budget thing that I just feel like... Um, elevates it to this level of, of best picture nominee that I understand it more as a nominee than I do understand Belfast as a nominee. I lost interest in nightmare alley. I was really into it for the first act, but then I lost interest a lot when we switched settings and jumped ahead in time after the first act. So for the last two, I was a little less engaged. Um, and the reason why is because the the movie kind of shifted focus at that point to really focus on Bradley Cooper and his character and Kate Blanchett comes in and i just found both of them to be so despicable their characters uh that i just could not bring myself to get engaged with them at all and they just hog the screen time for the last more than half last two thirds of the movie they just dominate it and it's like Bradley Cooper's character, there was just nothing about him that I wanted anything to do with. I didn't like him at all. And with, you know, I mean, sure, I have I love anti-heroes. I mean, we all do, right? We all like the guys that we shouldn't be rooting for, but we are because there's something compelling about them. His character, I did not find that in. I just thought he was just like a bad guy. And I just didn't even want anything to do with him. I didn't even want to know how his story uh, went but the production design on Nightmare Alley gorgeous and there's some really good work among the cast Rooney Mara I thought was phenomenal Ron Perlman was very good uh, scene stealing and the just a handful of scenes he was in Willem Dafoe very good as usual David Strathairn once again awesome it's a it's a great cast uh Tony Collette's in it also I mean when do you ever lose with her so just a, a phenomenal cast, but I just didn't feel it with Kate Blanchett and Bradley Cooper, and they were really at the top of it. And, and the movie itself, it just left me very cold, very distant. I just did not love it. But the movie looked like a million bucks. Um, and if you like noir, you know, you should check it out because it's a, it's a neo-noir for sure. Um, but uh, it won't be one that I think I'll be going back to anytime soon let me just put it that way so i got it at number six on my list of the seven of uh, of the nominees i've seen for best picture so far and it's streaming right now on hbo max if you got a subscription there you can check out nightmare alley you can also rent it as a streaming rental number five is also streaming on hbo max right now and that is denny villeneuve's dune <laughs> Uh, this was the big sci-fi epic based on the classic, uh, the the classic book that everybody thought you know would never be turned into a cohesive film, and that David Lynch had kind of ruined the chance that anybody would be able to do this movie again. But Denny Villeneuve, this was like his all-time 
dream project and with all the big movies that he's directed in the last few years, especially in sci-fi, he was handed the keys. And I think he did a really good job. I, I reviewed this movie in full a few episodes ago. You can go back and check that out if you want to hear me talk about Dune in great detail. But I'll just sum it up for you here. I, I thought the visuals were outstanding. I thought it had that low-fi kind of look that Denny Villeneuve's sci-fi movies do, which means not overloaded with CGI. Minimalism is, is the uh, name of the game with him. But when there are special effects shots, they look realistic and they feel uh, like a, a real part of the world. They don't feel like something that was tossed in in the computer. It feels like the actors are really looking at something there. Um, so I thought the the design of the production was fantastic. I thought the costumes were great. The sound work was awesome. But I just thought the story was somewhat dull, honestly. And I thought the ending was completely non-existent. I mean, seriously, Dune might have had one of the lamest third acts that I can think of in any blockbuster in movie history. It's one of those, like, it is a total non-ending. It's a total we are counting on a sequel kind of ending. And thankfully the green light was given to the sequel because if not, this would have been like, Oh my God, that was it. Like nothing happens in the end. The final quote unquote battle is so lame uh, that I just was like, you know, and I talked to somebody who read the book and they're like, yeah. And actually that scene that I'm talking about, it's a knife fight. That scene is like really intense and very long drawn out in the book. And in the movie, they kind of just rushed through it. And I was like, that was the big final, you know, showdown at the end of the, like, come on. I mean, Kingpin had a better, had a better final act than this. So I don't know. Um, I was not loving Dune as far as a piece of storytelling. Although I, I think that the acting was great across the board, even though it was a little cold. I thought the characters were interesting. I thought the world building was well done. And there's a lot of that to do in this movie. But I just thought the story was a little dull, um, and I thought that the third act was just so – it was just counting on a sequel. And that, to me, is that really hurts a movie because, you know, it needs to hold up on its own, and then the sequel can take it from there. Uh, but the, the first one's got to be able to hold up on its own, or else it's hard to take it seriously as a as a complete film. So I'm interested for part two because I think there is room for improvement. Um but, you know, still the thing with Dune for me that I'm excited about is that this was big money being spent on a movie made for adults. Like this was not comic book stuff, superhero stuff. Sure, it's sci-fi and sure, it's like kind of like man baby territory kind of stuff. Uh, but at least it took itself seriously and it took, I think, its audience's intelligence seriously and Denny Villeneuve obviously took the subject material seriously. So um, I'm always glad to see that. Anytime big money is being spent on movies for adults. And I feel like David Fincher and Denny Villeneuve are two of the only directors in the business who studios will fork over big money for to tell adult stories in a way that will only appeal uh, to adults for the most part. And I think Dune goes that way. So it's a movie that I'm glad was made, uh, but it's not best picture winning material in my mind. So I've got it at number five on my ranking. And mostly that's because of the crazy, the great visuals, the costume design, the production design overall, phenomenal, great sound as well. Dune right now is streaming on HBO max. If you want to check it out. So the first three on my list, they're like soft recommendations, Belfast, Nightmare Alley and Dune from here on up number four through number one. These are 
full on full throated recommendations that I would say you need to check these movies out. Number four on my list is CODA. If you haven't heard of this movie, CODA is an acronym. It stands for Child of Deaf Adults. And this is a phrase that's used in the deaf and hard of hearing community for a kid who was born hearing from two parents who are deaf. So, um, you know, obviously it's a really unique kind of way to be brought up. And it's a, it results in a lot of times the child having to do a lot of um, translating work, basically learning American Sign Language, but also you know, learning to speak English or whatever language it is that they happen to speak and, you know, having to translate for hearing people and their parents whenever they go out somewhere and it can really be wear on you. And Coda talks about that a lot. It follows a a teenage girl, older teenage girl who's getting ready to finish high school, um, who uh, is with her family um, and they're all deaf. So it's her parents and her older brother. All three of them are deaf. She's the only one that can hear and uh, they all work in on a fishing boat, and uh, this is kind of their life, and work's kind of drying up a little bit. The business is in danger, and she's thinking that all of her dreams have to be basically done away with, and what she wants to be is a professional singer. Uh, she's got a really great gift for it. So it's this whole thing, you know, I mean, obviously she excels in something that her parents can never truly uh, understand or enjoy in the way that she wants them to, Um because obviously they can't hear her sing. So it's a, it's a really good story. But what Coda is, is so funny and moving while never once insulting the audience, insulting the characters. It's very intelligent, really well scripted, um, really well acted, well made. It's just a good, solid piece um, of dramatic filmmaking and it's but it's comedic as well like i said this is light drama for sure it's there's a lot of big laughs in this movie um and i feel like it really fall i knocked on belfast saying that there was nothing in this that i hadn't seen done before and i think you could say that about coda too it follows the book the playbook on telling the story of you know the rebellious teenager who wants to break free from the overbearing family. It it follows that, you know, the coming of age story. It follows the playbook a hundred percent. But the big difference is obviously we've got deaf characters here played by deaf actors, which is a huge thing. Um, we don't have hearing actors playing deaf people. We've got real deaf actors, including the legendary Marley Matlin, um, who is, or she's already won an Oscar and made history. Uh, and she does another great performance here. Very unlikable in this movie, which I, thought was cool. It was against type for her. Um, but it, it, but in the end, I mean, I think you understand her. She plays the main character's mother and she's a very overbearing mother. Um, and Amelia Jones plays the main character and she is hearing and she's just phenomenal. I, I was surprised she wasn't nominated for an Oscar for her work as best leading actress because she really does carry this movie in a lot of ways. Um, and Troy Kotzer, who is another deaf actor, he plays her father in it and he's just like steals every single scene. He's so good in this and he was nominated for best supporting actor. I would not be surprised at all to see him win the Oscar for best supporting actor and make some history for himself there. Um, because he's just really good in it. And I think his performance will move you and make you see deaf people in a way that maybe you've never really thought about their plight. Um, and also their abilities. I mean, you know, it's, that's a big thing in this movie. It's not about 
like, oh, you got to feel bad for them. It's just about like, this is another challenge. And uh, here are the ways that, that they get over it. And, and this family does fine, but they kind of isolate themselves because they're worried that people don't understand them. And uh, so it only makes the isolation stronger. So there's a lot of serious stuff kind of at play in this movie, but it's done in a kind of a lighter way. And, um, you know, the script isn't anything groundbreaking or like nothing I've seen before, but I think the performance is elevated and the care with which it was done elevated as well. But it's a, it's a, uh, it's a good, like R rated family comedy drama. It's one of these movies that you could easily watch with your family and have a good night laughing at it and watching it. And, uh, everybody would kind of feel good when it was over. So, uh, check out Coda. I fully recommend it. It's streaming now on Apple TV plus, and, uh, you can sign up for a subscription to that for pretty cheap. It's like $5 a month. You probably get, have a free, um, you get like a free week of it if you've never done it. So do the trial and watch the movie. At least you get to watch this really good movie totally for free. Uh, and then see if there's anything else though that you want to watch as well. So, um, Coda, I 100% completely recommend, and I've got it ranked at number four on my ranking of uh, best picture nominees this year. I don't think Coda is quite to the level of like it should win Best Picture, but it's a really well done, well crafted movie and a, a very well told story. All right, so number three, and I would say that anywhere from here, three, two, or one, any of these are on the level that uh, of a movie that should win Best Picture. And if either any of these three win, I would not be disappointed to see them win. Best Picture, because it's that kind of heavy filmmaking, that kind of serious craftsmanship and that kind of, um, you know, really just impressively well made uh, films. So number three is streaming right now on Netflix. It's The Power of the Dog, directed by the legendary Jane Campion. And um, this is heavy stuff. If you don't haven't heard, you've probably heard The Power of the Dog being talked about as the front runner for best picture. And by the time you hear this, you know, you may know whether it wins or not, but, um, I've got it ranked at number three. I wasn't as knocked out by it as I was by the ones I've got at number two and one. Um, but I really did feel something when I was watching this movie and I really was impressed by the time it was over. I will say it didn't grip me from start to finish. It, it, it took some time and I will call it a, I will use the most tired of all the tired, phrases and call it a slow burn if you will but it's not a very long movie so it's not like a slow boring burn um but it it is a a bit of a slow burn and a total character study so basically what it's about is benedict cumberbatch plays this total asshole um rancher who uh you know owns a ranch with his brother and uh they're in montana and this is this takes place in the late 18, no, it's like the early 1900s. Yeah, it's the early 1900s because they're driving cars and stuff too. So, um, you know, it's at that time where the American West is kind of losing its its luster and it's not being, be, the, the American West isn't what it once was. 
Um, but that kind of stuff doesn't really come into play here. It's just more of a, a like I said, a character study. And anyway, Cumberbatch's brother, who's played by Jesse Plemons, uh, falls in love with this woman, plays by uh, Kirsten Dunst, his wife in real life. Um, and uh, he ends up asking her to marry him, and and she and her son, played by Cody Smith McPhee, come to live at the ranch and. Benedict Cumberbatch makes everyone's life kind of hell because he just doesn't want these people here. And uh, in turn, this ends up uh, causing problems for him, as you find out uh, as the movie goes on. But anyway, The Power of the Dog is heavy stuff. And when it all ends, you've got kind of this sick feeling in your stomach, like you were aiding and abetting a crime that never should have happened in the first place. That's the way I felt when the movie ended and you could maybe call the ending cheap, but I don't think I would go there. I've heard some people complain about that, but for me, the ending really worked. I was into this movie, but the true greatness of the power of the dog didn't really click for me until the ending came about when I think it really did all come together in a shocking way. Cause it's got a really, it, it really does have a surprising ending, but I think it works and I think it all adds up. And I think if I rewatch this movie, it's going to make 100% sense to me. The acting is phenomenal across the board. That's why everyone in the main cast was nominated for an Oscar. Um, Cumberbatch is my pick to win Best Lead Actor, I'd have to say. He's got to be because he he's just he's channeling something really dark here in this performance. He does a very nice job. He borders on overacting a couple times, I think, and the accent is a little weird, but it works. And I think this is you know high-level acting. Uh, we're used to high-level acting from him, but this is kind of something different. And he's really channeling something dark here. And Kirsten Dunst goes very deep. And I could definitely see her winning her Oscar finally for this performance. She's an actor that I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to early in her career. I mean, it was when, you know, she was younger and I was younger. And she was in a lot of popular movies. But she was in The Virgin Suicides too, which is a movie that I'm not huge on. Um but I just, I, I don't like her in the Sofia Coppola movies for whatever reason. Uh, but I like, I've liked her a lot in the last few movies that I've seen her in. And I think she was fantastic in The Power of the Dog. She's very good. And you feel her emotions strongly in this movie. So I think her winning an Oscar makes a lot of sense here too. And Cody Smith-McPhee and Jesse Plemons both also brilliant. I really liked the score as well. Um which was done by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. And it just cranked up the feeling of the unease that's felt throughout this whole movie. I thought the atmosphere in the power of the dog was so heavy. And you think about Westerns, Westerns are a genre that are known for what being wide open, right? That the feeling you get when you watch Westerns is freedom is, uh, anything's possible. You know what I mean? You can, it, good or bad, you could just go out in a Western, ride a horse in any direction you want, settle in some town, shoot a bunch of people up with guns and then get out of town. And, and if you, if your horse is fast enough, you could just go on with the rest of your life. I mean, it's like you could truly do anything. Um, or you could stick a stake in the ground, build a house. And as long as you protect it, it's yours. Um, you know, you get all these big John Ford vistas, and stuff like that, but in The Power of the Dog, that's not the way it is. This is a tightly made, this is a, a movie where the shots are, are, are cramped, and everything feels small, everything feels oppressive, and so it's, a, it's really striking, and it's a very strong piece of filmmaking that I think Jane Campion has done here. 
that she should be very proud of, obviously, and anybody involved with this should be. So The Power of the Dog, streaming now on Netflix, very good movie. And um, I was, like I said, really knocked out by it, especially once the ending came. I don't think it's for everyone, um, but it's one of those movies that I think I could easily see winning the Best Picture Oscar, especially the way that the the award has gone over the last few years, the kind of tendency to lean more toward um, stuff that's a little bit more art house, stuff that's a little bit more demanding than what used to win Best Picture. But uh, it's not my top ranked of all the Best Picture nominees that I've seen. But still, The Power of the Dog is streaming now on Netflix, and I totally recommend it, especially if you just want to see great acting. And Peter, hmm? we had this Valentine box. And it was covered with white crepe paper. And we would paste big red hearts on it. Lopsided hearts. You had a great many Valentines. A great many. Because you're beautiful. Is there some that makes you shiver? I don't remember. Or not unreachable. We're not unreachable. Don't have to do this. I'll see you don't have to do it. Number two on my list, streaming now on HBO Max. It's a Japanese drama. It is uh, the only foreign language film that's nominated for Best Picture this year. Uh, of course, Parasite won Best Picture a couple years ago from South Korea. It became the first foreign film to win that. And Drive My Car is trying to do it again in uh, for for a Japanese film at this point. Uh, so the movie is Drive My Car. You know, speaking of heavy subject matter, this was one of those great movies to me uh, that I was just glued to from end to end. And every single character, I feel like if you stopped and you focused on any random character that's in this movie that has a line, Every single one of them has a meaningful or tragic life story if you were to follow them for an entire movie. Like, that's this kind of movie. This this is one of those movies that's so rich in its creation, its foundation. The script is so good, so detailed, the acting so well done that every single little character feels like they matter in the scheme of the world, not just in the plot. And feel like they would break your heart if they opened up to you and told you their story. And what Drive My Car is about, basically, it's about a guy who's a, a you know kind of well-known, acclaimed theater director and actor in uh, Japan. And his wife, who is a big television writer, television director, suddenly dies um, and obviously leaves him wondering where to go from here. And so he takes his talents to Hiroshima and does a theatrical production of Uncle Vanya, the Chekhov play, uh, 
up in Hiroshima and he puts together a cast of his own choosing. And, and this movie is kind of about them doing that, but also about his acceptance of, of the grief and the complexities of their marriage and how he viewed them. Um, but also it's about the other people that he comes in contact with and, and kind of finding, you know, a human connection with someone else because he's a, a fairly closed off guy, even from his own wife. And it seemed like they had a pretty good marriage, a, a different kind of marriage, but still a pretty good marriage. So there is a lot going on in Drive My Car. I'm telling you, it's one of those movies with layers upon layers. It's adult filmmaking in the fact that nothing is easy in this movie. It's three hours long. Um, and it uses every single minute of that time wisely. I did not at any time feel like they should have trimmed any fat because there's really no fat in this movie. And there is so little emotion in it. And, you know, I had to think of my wife, Beth, when I was watching it, because she always complains. She doesn't like big shows of emotions in movies. She likes when, you know, actors keep it very close to the vest. She likes that kind of stuff, that kind of like British style of acting. Um, not though she does. She she's not big into the Brando James Dean kind of school of throwing your entire soul into it and letting that out. Um, so it, it, she likes Al Pacino in the Godfather more than she likes Al Pacino in heat is what I'll say. Uh, whereas I'm kind of the opposite. You know what I mean? I like those actors that really do dig in, but drive my car is that kind of movie where nobody shows any emotion, almost the entire film until it gets really to the end. And that's when it's, it comes out and you really do feel it because it's been building this whole time. So everyone just seems to have layers and drive my car. I think this is the best character driven movie of the batch, the best character driven movie that I saw from 2021. And I think it's a must see for lovers of human drama and, you know, maybe subtitles turn you off, whatever, and maybe they will for three hours. But if you're not afraid of that, watch drive my car. It's, um, if you also, if you like looking behind the scenes at the way, you know, theatrical productions come together, it does give you a good view into that and the complexities of that and act. It goes into acting and what's behind that as well. Uh, that's another angle that makes this movie interesting, but it's a complex movie and it's a, a really well-written one, well-acted, well-made. If it wins Best Picture, um, I would not be upset one bit. Uh, drive My Car the big uh, Japanese drama that got everybody talking from last year. It's streaming now on HBO Max. 100% worth your time. It's number two, though, on my ranking of Best Picture nominees. And there can be only one. Number one on my list of the nominees that I saw this year is the movie I raved about last month on the show, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Streaming now on HBO Max if you want to check it out. And I'll tell you what, is West Side Story the most challenging, most difficult, most dazzling, um, you know, piece of heady filmmaking that was made in the year 2021? No, I would not say that at all. I mean, if you're looking for that, then Drive My Car or The Power of the Dog should be the ones that should win Best Picture. But to me, Best Picture is not always about being the most groundbreaking and most challenging movie of the year. Sometimes it's just about the best uh, movie for the time. And I feel like this is the movie we need to win Best Picture this year. And the reason I say that is that West Side Story is big, old-fashioned filmmaking with enlightened attitudes toward the backdrop and the representation 
that we expect in our movies these days. And it's done really well in a story that fits that kind of casting, um, that kind of authentic casting uh, perfectly. I mean, it's West Side Story is the classic tale of, uh, you know, racism getting the better of everybody and, and, you know, even sexism and just all these isms kind of coming between everyone. And it's set against the entire backdrop of poor people getting the shaft so that rich people can have a nice new arts center to go to. Uh, but they don't think about, you know, who's going to pick up the pieces of the houses that are destroyed when this uh, beautiful new place is built for all the rich people to come into town. So, um, you know, I mean, it's just classic. The music is is timeless, unforgettable. Uh, it sounds great in this case. Spielberg has a lot of the actors perform their songs live on the set. So it just gives you that, you know, air of, of really being in the theater. Like, uh, you don't get from a lot of musical movies. Um, and there's just a whole lot to love about this movie. It's unquestionably better than the original. And that one won Best Picture all those years ago. But this one is unquestionably better. I don't think you could find anybody who can make a serious argument that the original best uh, original West Side Story is better than the new West Side Story. And so that's impressive enough. And it's the best thing that Steven Spielberg has directed in perhaps two decades. So that really gives you a reason, I think, to, to check this out. The, the characters timeless the the performances that are in this movie bring them to life for a new generation and little touches like having rita marino play a big part again like she did in the first movie make it just a total joy to watch for movie nerds and musical nerds and everybody else Um, but even if you don't know about that kind of stuff those little easter eggs there's just a lot to get lost in and enjoy here it just west side story was made with heart but also with grit and it was a joy to watch from end to end. Uh, I loved every single second of this movie. I was blown away. And look, a musical has not won. Like, musicals used to win Best Picture all the time. You go back to the 60s, it was like a musical won it every single year that decade, it seemed like. Uh, But then they fell off, and a musical has not won Best Picture in 20 years since Chicago did it back in uh, 2003, but it was for the 2002 movies. So... I'd say it's about time, and this is the one I'd like to see do it again. Um, you know, it's Spielberg, really at his best. Big-time movie-making, done with weight, heft, and heart. And he's one of those guys that just knows how to bring those things together. I think it should win Best Picture, and I would love to see it get the trophy. It is West Side Story, and if you want to watch it, it's streaming now on HBO Max. I think you'll love it. Turn it up and just have a good time. Um, like I said, I think it's the movie we need to win Best Picture after the last couple of years that we have had. We don't need another really depressing one like Nomadland or even Parasite was pretty depressing. We need a movie that's you know going to really make us all feel good. And, it, and when it gets that bump of being the Best Picture winner, a lot of new people discovering this and discovering the music from it and, and listening to that and... Uh, I just think there's a lot of fun to be had with West Side Story, and uh, it was a joy, total joy to watch. It's my number one uh, ranked movie of the Best Picture nominees this year, West Side Story, and it's streaming now on HBO Max. Tonight, tonight, it all began tonight, I saw you on the Only you tonight What do you want? What do you do? What do you 
But I've got a secret for you. West Side Story was not my favorite movie of 2021. I will tell you what that is uh, coming up after Andy's segment. So let me toss things up by the lake. And we'll hear from Andy here on this 100th episode of the Stream Police Podcast. I can't believe it. Can you believe it, my friend? Take it away. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. God, 100 episodes. When we recorded the first episode of the Stream Police, Barack Obama was president. You know, I, I recorded my segment at uh, at the WHIO radio studios in Dayton. That was like three jobs ago. You know, I, I looked this up when our when uh, the first episode dropped. The number one song in America was "See You Again" by Wiz Khalifa. The number one movie was Furious 7, followed closely by the triumphant Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. When the Stream Police podcast debuted, uh, the front page of the New York Times warned of ISIS, and Bill Clinton was commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, a bygone era indeed. Uh, but my name is Andy Sedlak, and I oversee the uh, musical pursuits around here. If you haven't already, please rate and review us. That would mean a lot. We don't do it for money. We don't do it for accolades. We just do it because we like it. And we like to share some of our thinking with you. All right, that covers it. Let's get on with it. Get on with it. It's only fitting that we open uh, this portion of the show with an obit. Uh, this time we turn our attention to Taylor Hawkins, the wild man drummer of the Foo Fighters. Hawkins was found dead in a hotel room uh, while touring South America. Uh, just look this up. This just came out as as I sit down to record this. That uh, His toxicology report uh, had uh, an abundance of substances in his system. That includes opioids. It includes antidepressants. But he was a talented musician. Here's uh, just a taste of what he could do. 
Hawkins was brash behind the kit. He didn't simply uh, keep the beat. He was in the mold of uh, Keith Moon. Uh, He hit hard. There were lots of drum fills. He was Dave Grohl's uh, top lieutenant, you could say, in the Foo Fighters, an integral part of the band's personality. He did have his struggles. Here's Taylor Hawkins speaking about depression. It doesn't matter what's in your, you know, how much what's in your bank account or how many hits are on your YouTube page or all that kind of crap. It all goes out the window if you're not feeling not feeling right, you know. Hawkins joined the Foo Fighters for their third album. That one came out in 1997. Uh, he's been there ever since. Prior to joining the Foo Fighters, he toured with Alanis Morissette, which I I didn't know that. Occasionally, Dave Grohl and Hawkins would swap roles in concert. Grohl would take the drums and Hawkins would sing. Really didn't have a bad voice at all. Here he is doing a cover of Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. Taylor Hawkins was 50 years old. There's a reason the Foo Fighters' third drummer turned out to be their last. Even for a musical perfectionist like Dave Grohl, Taylor Hawkins was the perfect fit. Taylor grew up in Orange County and got his big break drumming for Alanis Morissette on her massive two-year Jagged Little Pill tour. And it just went nuclear, man. It was like, it went nuclear. But it was immediately following the tour that he left to join, at the time, a much smaller band, but one that he instinctually knew would rock. And he was right. For the next 25 years, he would be known as the long-haired, board-short-wearing drummer of one of the world's biggest rock and roll bands, the Foo Fighters. Switching gears, I was in the car the other day thinking about what I should do uh, for my next segment. And, and, and as I'm thinking, the gaslight comes on. Now, normally, it's a minor inconvenience. On this day, however, it was a legitimate pain in the ass. I filled up my car for 4 bucks and 19 cents a gallon. It's brutal. You know, the national average up over 20% from February. If you're listening to this in uh, Utah or Nevada or Alabama, you're really feeling it. I'm in Ohio, home of one of the 10 highest gas spikes in the nation. And before we go any further, look, it's not Biden's fault. Just stop it. It's more complicated than that. But once I once I finished up, I, I wiped my tears and got back in the car and started thinking about just driving. You know, the car has always been a metaphor for independence. It's always been a metaphor for upward mobility. It's always been a symbol of, of liberation. 
uh, and individuality. If it's costing us more, what it really means is that it's restricting these things. It limits the opportunities to flex on the power of the car. And that's what makes this pain at the pump particularly bad, right? It's, it's hitting us where it hurts. So I got to thinking, though, about car songs, specifically car, car songs that you may not know. Car songs you don't know. And there are car songs in every genre from every era, and there will be more to come. So today, let, let's talk about them. We're, we're going to do it chronologically, okay? We're talking about car songs, we're doing it chronologically, and that means we got to go back, way back uh, to the early days of not only cars, but also recording equipment. Robert Johnson recorded this song just 10 years after Chrysler was founded. It's called Terrapin Blues. Now you know the cars ain't even bourbon. Little generator won't get this far. Or in a bad condition, you gotta have these badges job. I'm crying, please. Don't do me wrong. I've been driving my terry plant down for The Terrapin was a car by the Hudson Motor Company. It looks like uh, one you would see in like old gangster movies. You could only buy it between 1932 and 1938, six years. The Hudson Company itself was bought out in the mid-1950s. Now, I know I played you a, a clip there. You may not have caught some of the lyrics. They're brutal. The coils ain't even buzzing. The little generator won't get the spark. The motor's in bad condition. Gotta have those batteries charged. I'm crying. Please, please don't do me wrong. Is he talking about the car or something else? The generator won't get the spark. Or in a bad condition, you gotta have these batteries charged. I'm crying. Please, please don't do me wrong. From the very beginning, the car was used as a metaphor for, well, something else. In other words, it was well-worn territory by the time Prince did it with Little Red Corvette. This illustrates the point. This is from 1948. I got a hot rod baby down in Dallas She gotta take off like a jet propulsion She never stops when the red light says there's danger. Other girls leave town when she's around this hot rod gal of mine. Hot rod, (whistles) hot rod, look at her chassis, a streamlined baby with an overdrive built in. The 60s, it could be argued, was the golden age of the car song. Teenage culture was, by this point, respected. If not by parents, then certainly by uh, music execs that knew teens would buy music about subjects they could relate to. And what was more relatable or desirable than a car? Here's Jan and Dean with Dead Man's Curve. If you're not hip to it, work it into your summer playlist.
Now that that is epic shit. The song about drag racing was later covered by Blink 182. Dead Man's Curve is a real location, accurately depicted in the song. It is almost a 90-degree curve on Sunset Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Fun fact, there's also a Dead Man's Curve in Cleveland, where I am recording this. If you have visited me, you no doubt remember it. The song ends in tragedy, and tragic songs involving teenagers had a brief moment of popularity in the early 1960s DJs called them death discs or splatter platters. Well, the last thing I remember, Doc, I started to swerve, and then I saw the jag slide into the curve. I know I'll never forget that horrible sight. I guess I found out for myself that everyone was right. By the time the 1970s rolled around, car songs worked their way into sensitive singer-songwriter territory. Here's one for your playlist. It's called Taxi by the great Harry Chapin. It was raining hard in Frisco. I needed one more fare to make my night. A lady up ahead waved to flag me down. She got in at the light. Oh, where you going to, my lady blue? It's a shame you ruined your gown in the rain. She just looked out the window. She said, 16 parks, I think. It turns out the narrator knows this woman. In fact, they go way back. You see, she was gonna be an actress and I was gonna learn to fly she took off to find the footlights I took off to find the sky this song also uh, has a bummer of, of an ending not tragic like Dead Man's Curve but typical of the times it, it ends in sort of a 70s auteur kind of way the 80s, forget about it. The whole decade was nothing but car songs. We mentioned Little Red Corvette, but how about this one? Hey, 
That's I Can't Drive 55 by the Red Rocker, Sammy Hagar. The car this time used as a metaphor for 80s era frustration. Similar sentiment was found in Warren Zevon's Gridlock. If the guitar sounds familiar, it's because Neil Young is playing it. did produce some tender car songs this uh this one is obscure but but it's great you know this is called driver's seat by the little known band sniff in the tears Okay, we move into the 1990s, the decade of hip irony. Look no further than Cake for a prime example. This is called Stick Shifts and Safety Belts. Stick shifts and safety belts. Bucket seats have all got to go when we're driving. In the car, it makes my baby seem so far I need you here with me Not way over in a bucket seat I need you to be here with me Not way over in a bucket seat And of course, there was Metallica with perhaps the most relevant song on our list. It's appropriately titled, Fuel. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire Pay me dead. And I 
fuel, fuel, fuel. That's the reason we got started on this topic in the first place. Now, there were a number of country songs and rap songs involving cars in the 2000s. If you listen to this show, you know that I'm not particularly a Tim McGraw fan, but this song gets my attention. It's called Red Ragtop. No, it's not a metaphor this time. Everything Tim McGraw sings is literal. The song is actually about abortion. Uh, the couple, they have sex in a red ragtop, and then he takes her to the clinic in the same car. We park way out in a clearing in a grove, and the night was as hot as a coal burning stove. We were cooking with gas. It had to last in the back of that red rag top. She said, Please don't stop. That's how it starts. Here's where it ends up. I was out of the job and she was in school, and life was fast and the world was cruel. We were young and wild. Decided not to have a child So we did what we did And we tried to forget And we swore up and down There would be no regrets In the morning light But on the way home that night On the back of that Of course, the 2000s was a decade to flaunt it if you had it, hence 3-6 Mafia. I'm riding spinners, I'm rolling pedal to the metal, then stop. Take another sip from the serve, then stop. Let my seat back, drop the top, then stop. See me something sexy, spot that ass, I gotta stop. My rims so shiny, they clear like flash screen plasma. Gas flame when they see them, it's hard to breathe like they got asthma. Older people tripping cause they think they seeing things. My car's sitting still, but my rims still rolling, man, they out the chain. Everybody let you spin wheels, bend like a spin meal. Juicy J on certain pills, cruising down the You got to admit it, that's a, that's a sweet beat. Things got a little more reflective in the 2010s. Here's Ace Hood. Life can flip in a matter of seconds. One morning you waking up in the projects. And the next morning you wake up in a $1.2 million dollar car. How did I get here? I can look it for you with Haitians. I stay smoking on good Jamaican. I for bitches from different races. You get money, they started hating. I woke up in a new Bugatti. 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 
Yeah, let, let's hear a little more of that. That brings us up to the current era, and one of the biggest songs last year was about, you guessed it, a car. Olivia Rodrigo and driver's license. So, cars. It's a universal theme, regardless of genre, regardless of era, regardless of style, artist, or spirit. Uh, Let's hope we can all get back to joyriding soon. Covering ground shouldn't drive us into debt. Now, shoot, here's one more. You could say this one's for the road. Cadillac Ranch, Bruce Springsteen. All right, friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Every month we had five more songs, so let's get it started. First, it's Wine and Women by Bill Wyman. Second, Monday Morning Quarterback by Frank Sinatra. I know there were a hundred ways to tell her I loved her. It's funny how they're all 
so clear today And when her face was burning With sadness and yearning I don't know why I turned my eyes away But it's so easy Looking at the game the morning after Adding up the kisses and the laughter Knowing how you would play it If the chance to play it over ever Then, On My Block by Scarface. Mind by the Killers. Finally, I give you From a Buick 6, staying with the car theme, right? It's a Bob Dylan cover by Gary U.S. Bonds.
It's not every day you hear Gary Bonds do Bob Dylan. Let's let's do a little bit more. right that's it thanks so much whether you've been with us for all 100 episodes or this is your first time enjoying the stream police thank you for coming along for the ride yes that 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 was pun intended pun intended all right see ya Thank you very much, Andy. Always good to hear from you, my friend. I hope we are able to to chat about some stuff here uh, live on the show or, hell, off mic as well here pretty soon. Uh, once again, I'm Clint Davis here on the Stream Police Podcast. I talk movies and TV. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis. You can also find me on Twitter there as well. If you want to hear my hottest of all takes, check me out. Uh, on Twitter. Anyway, uh, thank you again for listening to the Stream Police here on our Gala 100th episode. Did you wear your tie? I certainly hope so, because if not, turn the show off right now, damn it, put it on, and then you can hit play again, but not until you do that. So I've been talking about movies pretty much this whole episode, and I want to continue that. It's going to be a movie-full episode of the Stream Police, and why not with the Oscars just now uh, in the books for another year. I want to tell you about a movie that I watched while I was trying to run through the Oscar nominees and that I was just completely knocked on my ass by. Um, and it's Netflix's The Lost Daughter. This is nominated for two uh, Oscars in the acting categories. It's up for Best Lead Actress with Olivia Coleman, and it's up for Best Supporting actress with Jesse Buckley. They both play the same character in this movie, just at different stages in her life. And so I watched The Lost Daughter knowing that. But I knew very little about this movie otherwise. And I came away, I am not kidding you, feeling like this is the best thing I've watched from 2021. I am I am stunned that this was not nominated for Best Picture. I don't understand why it wasn't. Because to me, it would be the pick to win Best Picture. I think it's that good. Uh, I think it is, it, it's the best movie that I've seen from 2021. So this is, for all intents and purposes, my number one movie of 2021, uh, The Lost Daughter, which is a Netflix movie, you know, basically. And uh, again, it stars Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, Dakota Johnson, Ed Harris, who I hadn't, feel like I hadn't seen Ed Harris in forever. Man, he, he does look pretty old these days, which is crazy because he always just looked kind of 
always just timeless, rugged, but now he kind of does look like an old guy, which I guess he is, but still. Uh, it was shocking to me. Uh, but anyway, Ed Harris is in it. Paul Meskel is in it as well, Irish actor who's uh, you know become kind of a big name from his work on uh, Hulu's Normal People, a show that I have not gotten into yet. But the director and writer behind The Lost Daughter is Maggie Gyllenhaal, a name you probably know. Uh, you know, not only the sister of Jake Gyllenhaal, but a big-time actor in her own right, um, who, of course, had major role in uh, The Dark Knight and uh, has had plenty over her career, but now she's turned her work to behind the camera. And this is her directorial debut. And, oh, my God, I can't think of too many directorial debuts that were better than The Lost Daughter. This has all the weight and the craftsmanship of a master filmmaker. This is somebody, Maggie Gyllenhaal has been paying attention, man, because she turned it on. And I don't know if we're ever going to see her in front of the camera again, because if she's this good at directing movies, I don't know why she'd ever act in one again. I mean, unless she just really wants to, I think she could easily just now be a director for good because this is, and the, the script she might even be a better writer than she is director because the script is fantastic. I just was blown away by this movie. So what it's about, I want to—I don't want to give you too much, but it's based on a novel by a woman named Elena Ferrante. And Elena Ferrante said that only a woman was going to be able to adapt this movie. She, she did, would not have let a man do it. So Maggie Gyllenhaal impressed her with her script, I guess, and she let her do it. Um, but So it's, you can look at it as a feminist film. You can look at it through the lens of that, but I think it's reductive. Uh, because this is just a very strong character study that happens to be about a woman and about women primarily in the main roles. And it really happens to be about motherhood and how that can be a tremendous burden on people who aren't really cut out for it. Um, and the tragedy of The Lost... So The Lost Daughter follows this woman, played by Olivia Coleman, who is like a brilliant um, researcher... And uh, she's a, a professor and she's been she she does translations of uh, Italian literature into English. And she's like, you know, heralded in the field of, uh, you know, of this kind of literature and, and this kind of work. She's very respected in that field and she's always worked really hard in it. She's a very smart woman, obviously, huge, big reader. Uh, and, and that's kind of those are her things. But she had a family at one point. She had a husband, two daughters. And th these are the scenes where we see Jesse Buckley because it goes back in time to when she was younger and her career was really just starting to take off. And she's with her daughters. But when Olivia Coleman is playing her, she's on vacation. She's on this vacation on like a, an island in Europe. And she's kind of coming face to face with this young woman played by Dakota Johnson, who's got a kid of her own. And she starts to see little bits of herself in this woman and how frustrated she is with her kids. And and she it, it brings her it, it makes her ruminate on her decision to leave her children, uh, abandon her family in in uh, to focus on her career all these years ago and how she still wrestles with that but seems to be at peace with it. And it's a, it's really complicated. There's a lot of, there are a lot of feelings to be had here on whether or not this is a character you should root for, or this is a character you should not like. I think, you know, if you talk to 10 people, you're going to get probably, you know, 10 different takes on 
first off, what happens, because a lot of it's subjective and up for discussion, the ending is a total mystery. It's one of those that I think will be puzzling over for years to come. It's one of these movies that I think is destined to be put on the Criterion Collection and, and talked about as a you know, kind of a, a classic in years to come. One of those that a lot of people didn't see, but everyone in like 20 years talks about it as like, oh, it's a classic of the 2020s and it passed by somehow. I think it's going to be one of those kind of films. Um, and it was just so well done. It felt like sometimes do you ever watch a movie and you feel like this is like a novel on the screen to me, that is a huge compliment because novels do have the ability to be so much more complex than movies and TV shows are able to be just because of the format um, and the relative, like the no limitations whatsoever that there are put on a novel, on the format. I mean, you can go wherever you want in a novel. You can do whatever you want. You can break every rule um, because it's really just up to you and you, your typewriter, your computer, whatever. You don't have to have a budget. Um, you don't have to come up with drawings, storyboards. You don't have to have an actor that can pull something off. You can just make it up and make it happen as long as you have the uh, ability to create a situation. And so this it felt to me like a novel on screen. And very few movies feel that way to me. But The Lost Daughter was totally that way. It just felt rich in a way that a lot of movies don't. It felt layered, nuanced in ways that a lot of movies don't. So much was left to ponder when it came to an end. So much was left to talk about at dinner if you were seeing this movie with somebody. And the performances are just phenomenal. But as I said, I think it's the script that steals the show. I mean, this to me is the shoe-in for best adapted screenplay. It's I don't see how a script could have been any better. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. And the acting, again, phenomenal. Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, both deserving of winning Oscars for their performances in this movie. Um, and both do some heavy, heavy lifting here. Um, and this is another movie not full of big performances, but there's a lot of big stuff bubbling under the surface, a lot of big things happening uh, in this in this film. It's loaded with tension. I found this movie to be very tense, uh, thriller-esque in a few parts, um, and very weighty in the decisions that are made from the characters and the situations that life has put them in. And it ponders, again, this whole idea, which I think is controversial still, that some people, women especially, are not meant for parenting or motherhood. And that sometimes they may realize it too late. Like they may have a kid, think this is what they want, and then it's a few years into it and their priorities change and they don't feel the connection to the kids, whatever. And it's like, this is not for me. And I think we've had a lot of stories about men doing that, leaving their kids. And, you know, we've even had we've had so many songs about it, movies, TV shows. And we've been asked to empathize with these guys sometimes. Um, we've been asked to hate them most of the time. But with women, it's like we almost never see that story told. It's like it's too shocking for us to imagine a, a mother leaving the family and going off and being you know, on her own, like a Rolling Stone, basically. And that's what the character in The Lost Daughter does. And so we, we figure out what she's learned from this and, and whether this is something that she lives with at peace or if she's still tortured with, uh, tortured by 
to this day. So there's a lot going on in The Lost Daughter, and I think it's kind of subversive, but I think it's very, very well done. I was blown away. I, I think Maggie Gyllenhaal, should, this is a masterpiece right out of the gate from her, so I cannot wait to see what the next movie is that she directs. But honestly, I can't imagine it being any better than this, so I hopefully hope she didn't peak too soon with her directorial career because it's uh, this is a serious, weighty piece of filmmaking that knocked me on my ass. I was blown away. It was the best movie that I've watched from 2021 so far, and it's streaming right now on Netflix. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you now that it was the best thing I watched this month. So usually next I would tell you what the best thing I watched this month is. But I'm not going to waste any time because it was The Lost Daughter. That's the best thing I watched all this month. And I watched a ton of movies this month. So take that for what it's worth. And I think you should stream it on Netflix immediately. They really put us through it, huh? I thought you said you were pregnant with your first. I am. What were your daughters like when they were little? Were they like this willful little creature? I honestly I can't remember much, actually. Oh, no, you can't forget anything about your own children. Is that your experience? I just mean, did your daughters give you a hard time when they were little? I just don't remember. You okay? She doesn't remember. I was very tired. So, excuse me. Maggie Gyllenhaal should have been up for Best Director. I mean, I, honestly, I think this is that good as far as filmmaking goes. I, and I think a lot of this comes from the director and the writer, and she's both. So uh, she did some serious work with this movie. I was, uh, I was blown away. All right, before I head out uh, here on our 100th edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Let me give you some recommendations for movies now streaming. We're always trying to help you build a better queue on this show. It's kind of been our mission statement from episode one all those seven years ago, way, way back in 2015, when we were still talking about Diane Sawyer and David Letterman, of all people, like two people that sound like total fossils. It was only seven years ago. But in a world of euphoria, um, everything that happened before that just kind of feels like old-fashioned, doesn't it? All right, so movies now streaming. Usually I like to give you something light and something dark from Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max when I can. Sometimes there's just nothing. Usually with comedy, sometimes there's not a good enough comedy for me to recommend, so I just give you two dramas, uh, and that's going to happen with one of these this month. Let's go to Netflix first. Uh, I'm going to start off with something light for you. Let's go to 2009 when Spike Jones got the keys to direct a big screen full-length adaptation of Maurice Sendak's all-time classic children's book, Where the Wild Things Are. And I remember going to see this in theaters. I was so pumped up because I liked Where the Wild Things Are, the book, so much when I was a kid. And I just thought Max was such a cool character. Um, I was excited about this. I had James Gandolfini in it. You know, I was I liked Spike Jones movies a lot. I still do to this day. And I really liked this movie. I think it just, again, had a lot of heart. But it had a lot of brains, too. It looked awesome. And it was, you know, really... I mean, how much more could you do on screen from a book that's, like, essentially 12 pages long and has, like, a paragraph worth of words in it? Like, there are not a lot of words in Where the Wild Things Are. So the fact that they were able to spin this into a full-length film and it was able to be this good 
was uh, kind of stunning to me. Great production design um, and a really cool vision of a, of a book that a lot of people probably never thought would be made into a live-action feature-length film. So I think it took some balls to make Where the Wild Things Are, but Spike Jones pulled it off in the way that really probably he only could. Somebody who was well-versed in like directing music videos was probably going to be the only person to do this movie. It was going to be like him or Michel Gondry, and uh, Jones is the one that got there got there first. So I recommend that. It's streaming now on Netflix. I feel like it's kind of a hidden gem of the early 2000s. And something dark for you on Netflix, again, I'm going to give you The Lost Daughter because I just spent the last however long raving about it. It's it's streaming for you on Netflix. It is dark, and it's totally something you need to stream right now. So The Lost Daughter and Where the Wild Things Are. Those are your Netflix recommendations for this month. Let's go to Amazon Prime Video. Streaming now, something light for you from 1996. It's uh, Chris Farley and David Spade's follow-up to uh, the classic Tommy Boy, 1996's Black Sheep. And if you haven't seen this one, you know, Black Sheep in some ways is even funnier, I think, than Tommy Boy is. It's bigger, that's for sure. Um, It's more over the top, and it's got a really good cast of of players in it as well, um, of actors that you're going to be stunned or even in this movie. So uh, I've always thought Black Sheep was underrated. It was the Black Sheep of the... Uh, of the Spade Farley duo, if you will, and uh, I mean their their teaming was so great, and it just makes you sad because you wish we could have gotten more movies from them, and we certainly wish you could have gotten more from Chris Farley, but he's at his best in this, and there's some really funny lines and some great scenes that I still quote to this day from Black Sheep. You got some kick-ass shit, and that movie is streaming now on uh, Prime Video. It's actually streaming on IMDb TV, which is part of Prime Video, but you don't have to have a subscription for it. So you just watch it free with ads. So if you missed Black Sheep or you've just been wanting to see it again, uh, check it out right now on Prime Video. Something dark for you. Let's go with Coffee from 1973. Pam Greer, one of her breakout classics. She plays a vigilante. When doesn't she play a vigilante? Plays a vigilante nurse who goes after these drug pushers and, uh, you know, criminals behind this drug ring who, uh, ended up getting her little sister hooked on junk. And, uh, so she goes at him in a bloody spree of revenge and it feels good. And she looks great and the music's awesome. And, uh, it's just a classic black exploitation at its best. Seventies gritty filmmaking, uh, and it's probably my favorite of the black exploitation movies that I have seen anyway. Um, and I'll, I'll admit that's limited. You know, I've probably seen a dozen of the of these movies, but uh, Coffee is my favorite. It's it's just so over the top and great. And Pam Greer is awesome. She takes it so seriously. Uh, it's a cool movie. It's streaming right now on Prime Video. And it is dark. It's a pretty dark movie. All right, uh, something light for you on Hulu. Let's go to Hulu now. I, there was nothing light really good, so I'm going to give you two pitch black, totally dark movies. Two really good dramas for you on Hulu. First off, 1986's seminal Blue Velvet from David Lynch. Uh, it's one of the all-time great 1980s movies. It's uh, it's a perfect film in my mind and in the minds of a lot of people. And it's just one of those movies you never forget. It, it, it's never really been duplicated. And it kind of peels back the veneer on suburban life. 
and gets way down the dirt. There's one of my favorite shots in movie history comes from Blue Velvet right at the beginning when the camera dives right down into the sod of this perfect manicured yard with the picket fence in front and the camera is not interested in that it dives down where the worms live in the dirt and that's where this movie spends all of its time and dennis hopper is brilliant he was never better than he was in blue velvet he just chews the scenery and it's great it's it's like overacting at its best and laura dern's awesome in it it's just a it's a really fantastic it's a fantastic movie and it's so dangerous and and scary in some parts and just unique. There's a, just a lot to love about Blue Velvet if you never watched it. Sure, it's weird as hell, but that's where the allure comes from. Try not to feel something when you're watching this movie. The, the soundtrack's awesome uh, also. So that is streaming now on Hulu in gorgeous high def. It's a beautiful movie. So check out Blue Velvet now. Right there. Let's go to 1999 on Hulu uh, for the movie Eight Millimeter. This is a, this is one that I I don't feel like I have ever seen streaming anywhere. I feel like it's kind of been slipped through the cracks. It's Nicolas Cage, Joaquin Phoenix in a very early role. Joaquin Phoenix plays a really good part in this. It's one of my favorite roles that he's ever had, uh, and the great James Gandolfini is in this as well. Um. But 8mm, if you never saw it, man, you talk about dark subject matter. This came out in the wake of 7. I want to say it was written by the guy who wrote 7. I think it came from the same writer. And I'm, I probably should look that up, but I'm going off the top of my head. I think it was the same writer. Uh, and it's very much in the similar vein. It's now it's not as good as 7, so don't get your hopes up. But what it's about is Nicolas Cage plays this detective who is investigating an alleged snuff film, which is like a a porn film that involves a young woman being killed on camera. Um, and it's like, is it real or is it not real? And so the whole thing is everyone says, this is a myth. There are no real snuff films, but Joaquin Phoenix's character, he plays a guy that works like kind of in, uh, the sex business, basically, uh, in the very seedy part of the city. And he kind of leads Nicholas Cage's detective, uh, in this, hunt to find out what happened in this film and whether or not it's real and what happened to the girl who happens to be in it. So it's a, a really grim movie um, and a good one to watch on a dark night. And if you like seven and you want something like it, eight millimeters, pretty close in tone to seven. There aren't a lot of movies that go that dark with their tone, but eight millimeter goes for it. And uh, again, not as good as seven, but very few movies are seven is is basically perfect. So it's hard to hard to argue, but eight millimeter is streaming now on Hulu. So check that one out. I think I'm going to watch it again. I haven't seen it in a long time. I've got it on DVD, but it would be cool to see it on, uh, in high def HBO max. Finally, uh, let me give you a couple movies now streaming. I've already told you about both of them. Something light, my pick to win uh, best picture West side story streaming now on HBO max. Give it a watch, turn it up, have fun and something dark. I'll give you drive my car. Uh, again, this is, uh, you know, arguably the best non-English language movie of last year. I didn't see a bunch of them, so I'm not going to say that it for, for sure is, but certainly the most high profile. And, uh, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking and it's streaming now on HBO max, but I'm going to call it something dark for you. So there you go. Eight movies to check out now on the various streaming services, depending on what you've got. There's lots to watch, man. And that's why we come back here every month and we've been doing it for a hundred episodes and Hey, we'll do it for a hundred more 
if you'll have us. So uh, thank you very much for checking us out. I want to thank Acast as well for hosting us for most of these hundred episodes. Not all of them, but most of them. And for the long while, they've been hosting us as well. So we appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's great to have the the outlet here. I know uh, I speak for Andy on that as well. So anyway, I want to thank Andy as well for uh, helping us out as always and uh, keeping us on the right track when it comes to streaming music out there. So anyway, you can email him at sedlackjournal at gmail.com. You can find him on Instagram at Andy Sedlack. And uh, you can email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com. And you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. I look forward to hearing from you on there, my friend. Reach out with me anytime. You have a question about a movie or you want a recommendation or uh, want to know my thoughts on something. Always happy to answer DMs, especially on Instagram, on that kind of stuff. It's what I love talking about. I come in here in the closet every month and do this for you, my friend, in the smoky closet in Columbus. But I'll talk to you again down the road. Until next time, stream on. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.